So our scripture this morning is John chapter 8, and I'm reading from verse 19. And uh, this is both for the message this morning, but it's also a good word as we head into the Lenten season because Jesus is alluding to what is coming for himself. So it's a, it's a, it's a good word for both the message that I want to share with you this morning as well as, uh, as we anticipate heading uh, to the cross. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 19. It says, then they, the they is the the Pharisees, the Pharisees asked Jesus, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin." Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not from this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his Father. And so Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. This is God's word. As I've been saying to you over the last few weeks in this series that we're in, in basics, that beliefs are important. Consciously and unconsciously, what we believe shapes how we think and live and love. What we believe about God. We live out of what we believe. It affects how we view the world, how we see others. We are spiritual beings. We are made in the image of God, made to be like God, to give glory to God, and made also to enjoy God forever. And God has been in relationship with themselves for all of eternity, a a relationship of mutual submission and self-giving and filling and receiving. God is a personal being, and all three persons of the Godhead, while sharing the same divine attributes and character, are distinct and different. And yet there is only one God. And while we believe in one God, and Scripture affirms this one God, there is something that is mysteriously and undeniably plural, about this one God. And while the word Trinity never appears in the Scriptures or in the Bible, it is a gradual and progressive revelation, and the New Testament is decidedly Trinitarian. The language of the church is Trinitarian. In in the three major ancient and ecumenical creeds of the church, the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian creeds, they are all Trinitarian. Historically, it defines what is Christian what is basic to the Christian faith. 
But let me explore the Trinity this morning from a little different perspective. And maybe this is a little bit beyond basic, but it's something that was on my heart, something I was excited to share with you. What happens, what happens when we aren't Trinitarian? In other words, when we don't recognize the individuals of the Godhead and sort of scrunch or smush God together into, into just blur the lines of differentiation and distinction and miss the dynamic of the three, what happens? Well, in the scripture that you just heard read, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you don't know my Father. What happens when we don't know the Father or have a faulty image of God as Father? When God as Father is missing or is seen largely as, when God is seen largely as threatening or punitive, there's a foundational scariness and insecurity to our whole human journey. Fear and competition dominates more than love. It's not a safe universe. It's not a benevolent universe. There's a terrorist God behind every rock, ready to pounce, ready to punish, to destroy if we don't get it right. I have to protect my life because no one else will. And life is framed in a kind of win-lose paradigm. And this is sort of twisted, but the church has done this. We've done this where we make God and Jesus into a kind of good cop, bad cop scenario. It's a bit twisted. God the Father is for us in the same way that God the Son is for us. If God is not for you, then it's all on you. And the result is that you approach life like an orphan child or like someone who has an abusive father. You grow up bereft and bitter if there's no solid ground, never knowing where you stand, if you're good enough, or if you really are loved and accepted as you are. Is it any wonder that so many people in our day are so paranoid and obsessive today, and so preoccupied with weapons and security systems of all sorts, why their eyes tear up when they find their ancestors on Ancestry.com, when there's no underlying uh, okayness to the world or to our own life, you believe anything and do anything to feel dignity and meaning and connectedness. This is if you're missing this, this component of God as Father. There's a reason that Jesus lived and modeled an intimate relationship with the Father and why he taught the disciples and us when we pray to address God as our Father. There's a deep alienation when you don't know the Father. There's no sense that reality is safe, personal, and strongly on your side. A sense that those of us with good human fathers probably took for granted. Some of us may need to do some work when it comes to Maybe our own earthly fathers. Where did they shine? And where did they fall short? Because our earthly fathers, whether we realize it or not, consciously or unconsciously, they give us a picture and image of our heavenly father. And earthly fathers are going to fail us. They just will because they're not perfect. Only your heavenly father is perfect. So even if you had the best dad in the world, Somewhere he probably failed. And this isn't about pointing and and putting blame or fault on anyone. It's just recognizing. I I look at my own dad. I I was blessed with a great father, a man of integrity, of strength and, and hard work and love. He was absolutely trustworthy, kind, gracious, and reliable. 
My dad even had a sense of humor. He protected and provided for his family. But the one place where he fell short, and this is in my estimation, and I, and I share this even with humility and even with an awareness that it's not entirely true if I, if I look more closely, but the one place, and my brothers, my four brothers, their experience, their perspective may be different than mine, but one thing I never had a sense of was my dad pursuing me. Never had a sense that my dad delighted in me. I know that he loved me, and I, I know that he was proud of me, but there wasn't this sense of being pursued and, and being delighted in. And I, I believe that God pursues me, but I have a hard time trusting that he delights in me, even though I can demonstrate it biblically and theologically. I have to trust that it's true. God does not love me because I'm good. God loves me because God is good. He delights in me because I am in Christ. And the, the, the Father said at Jesus' baptism, in fact, Jay alluded to it. In fact, you didn't know where I was going. And you even made the statement, wouldn't we all like to hear the words that the Father said to Jesus? Well, those words are for us, especially for those of us who are in Christ. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Those were the words that the Father gave to Jesus. He was absolutely affirmed in the love of his Father. How else could he have gone into the desert and gone through the cross unless he was absolutely certain and affirmed of his Father's love? But because we are in Christ, those words, and the Father sees us in Christ, those words are spoken over us as well. God loves me and he is well pleased with me and with you. I have no reason to fear his rejection or that I am going to be punished or pounced on. And when I experience discipline, it is aimed at bettering me and growing me. This image of God as Father is important. In a fatherless society, you've got to save yourself, which, is, which a lot of Christians are attempting to do by all kinds of ways and all kinds of even jihads against the world. We know the harm done by Muslim extremists. Well, Christians have done the same in the past, and there's a temptation even today to retreat to a kind of rigid fundamentalism, which is a way of controlling things. When there is no strong protection in your life, no father, you have to basically be a control freak. Some have been dismissive of the idea of God as father, saying that it is patriarchal, and it is, but that somehow we grow out of a need for a father. Really? Do we ever? Maybe the cynicism and fear that we see in the postmodern West or experience in ourselves will melt away as we regain a sense of God as a good, good father. Didn't we sing that this morning? He's a good, good God. Those aren't just words. That's a reality. And so let's, let's shift then to the second person of the Trinity, Christ, who is called the Son of God and the Son of Man. In his magnificent gospel, the Apostle John begins his gospel by saying that Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God, the Word that is made flesh, the Word or Logos through whom everything that exists is made. The word Logos in the Greek is translated word, but it's where we get our English word logic from. But don't think of logic in the sense of of, of um, rational sense, but logic as the pattern of reality. 
when our image of God is as revealed by His Son, Jesus, when that logos is missing, that pattern of reality is missing, then there's no meaningful direction or purpose to our lives. And we have to start from ground zero and figure it all out on ourselves, connect the dots on our own, and almost no one can or will. As Christians, Christ followers, we're supposed to know this pattern and yet seem, for the most part, as ignorant about it as everyone else. We do not know or believe or trust that reality has a Paschal or Passover pattern. That's the pattern that Jesus showed us. To put it plainly, listen, change, death, transformation are part of the deal. This season of Lent that we're entering into is a reminder to us of this pattern. We don't just go from Christmas to Easter, from one celebration to the next. We pass through Lenten lands, places of wilderness and desert. Resurrection and renewal are the final goal and result, but they don't come without loss or death and difficult transitions. But this is the pattern, and Jesus shows it to us. Again, in our scripture, Jesus talks about the Son of Man himself being lifted up, being obedient to the will of his Father, the fact that he knows that he's going to lay down his life, that he's going to die on a cross. Jesus speaks of this. He knows that it's a reality. And this is the pattern that he shows us. This is why one of my chief complaints about the health and prosperity preachers, they deny this paschal reality of life, which Jesus revealed and which he said we too must walk. The Paschal pattern is always loss and renewal. There is no renewal without loss, no resurrection without death. When I said, if you even remember two weeks ago, rather provocatively, that the church, something's broken, the church is not working anymore, and something needs to die, I had in mind this Paschal reality that change, transition, and new life can happen, but not without letting go, surrendering, loss, or even death. There is no vitality without reality. Even this Paschal reality or pattern of life. So what needs to die? One clue, there are probably many things, and this is probably part of a large, it is, is part of a larger conversation that I'm not going to have this morning, but one clue might be anything that we are clinging to to preserve our place, our privilege, our position, our possessions. Rather than becoming more like Jesus, the evangelical church has become embroiled in the culture wars of America. Rather than revealing any kind of new or alternative way, until there's a real death to the old self of security, status, power, money, guns, and war, any talk of rebirth or a new self that we purport to have is laughable to most of the world. If we are truly born again, born from above, then, like Jesus, we will listen to and lean into the life of God the Father, not our own. Probably this course that is coming, seven, that Betsy shared a few moments ago would be a practical way of living this, these truths out. Just one way of recognizing where in our lives do we cling to stuff that is in the way of God and that offers the world no better alternative than what the world already has. When the world thinks of Christians, evangelicals in particular, 
does it immediately think of people who are humble, yielded, surrendered like Jesus? Jesus is the pattern of reality, which must mean submission, suffering, surrender, loss, and death before there can be any real life transformation, resurrection, or restoration. Did Jesus not say that we are to follow him to take up our own crosses as well? This is the paschal pattern of reality. And listen, I've heard too many Christians say, even in the evangelical circles, well, that was Jesus' journey. He walked that so that we don't have to. That's a lie. We are called to take up our cross just as Jesus did, to die to self, to surrender, to yield, to be humble. And people who are in a place of privilege, people who are in a place of power, people who are on the top, do not understand the gospel. We have a hard time grasping what Jesus calls us to because it's so out of our experience. But talk to James Tongue, the missionary from South Sudan. Talk to the Christians living in the South Sudan and Ethiopia. I think they may have some insight into what the gospel has to say about the pattern of reality, the paschal pattern of reality. Lastly, let's speak of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. I used the term again two weeks ago when I was speaking on the Holy Spirit of the force field in, my, in, that, in that message as a metaphor for the presence and power of God's Spirit in the world. Don't, don't mistake that force field for, um, it's not an impersonal force field. The Holy Spirit is a personal being like the Father, like the Son. And the Holy Spirit was active in creation creatively producing and breathing life into God's creation. He is still at work in the world in amazing, creative, and transformative ways. And if we are unaware or doubtful of His presence and His purpose, the unique work of the God's Spirit in the world, then we will slip into a kind of cynicism about the trajectory of history. History keeps moving forward with ever new creativity. Admittedly, this movement is accompanied by a a seemingly opposite Uh, and equal pushback. Look at just the past century. For all the horrible wars, injustice, and sin, both personal and systemic, the immense advances, look at the the immense advances in consciousness, science, technology, and awareness. They're astounding. Many of us, and I'm talking about us white folk, have become more aware of racism bigotry, sexism, and the injustices of LGBTQ people. And some are still largely ignorant or dismissive of these ongoing realities. But but progress has been made, at least in some places, and there's much more work to be done. All lives matter, right? Yes. Black, white, Hispanic, refugees, Gay and lesbian, Jews, Muslims, all lives, the unborn, all lives matter. Until we recognize the sacredness and the dignity of every life, no life is safe. Many of us are aware and cannot go back to the way things once were. We refuse to, and we're deeply disturbed when it seems like there is regression. There's going to always be pushback. But trusting that God's Spirit is at work in the world, still moving us forward. God, the Holy Spirit, is at work not only in me, not only in you, not only in the church, 
But in the world, in the culture, in society, in history, listen, all goodness, all love, all truth, all justice, all healing and hope that is ever found in the world is the work of God's Spirit. It is God's kingdom at work. The Holy Spirit never gives up on His creation or humanity. I don't think that you can understand the Bible in any any meaningful sense if you don't understand that the primary arc is is a salvation of history, of humanity, and of creation itself. That's where things are going. God's design is to bless and to save all people and all of creation. And we will be much more effective as a church at bringing hope and healing to the world if we recognize that we are not alone in this, that God's Spirit is already at work, and we're just invited to partner with Him. When we reduce all the challenges and problems in the world to binary and dualistic thinking, which our Western minds are wont to do, where everything becomes black and white, right or wrong, true or false, it's a simplistic and inadequate approach to problem solving, and it will solve nothing. Rather, if the church is Christ to the world, and an agent of hope and healing in the world, it will require of us to engage creatively, listening and learning, humble and open, and determined to find a way forward that is consistent with God's ultimate plan and purpose for this world. So, even with that, it's still easy to get it wrong. And for 2,000 years, the church has gotten many things wrong, and yet God has still used us despite our bumbling along. And we won't get it all right either. But how do you know when you're in the flow? How do you know when you're in step with God's Spirit? Listen, I'll give you some criteria. If in your heart, in your prayers, in your passions, there's something that is bubbling up in you like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, you are in the flow of the Spirit. He's in you. When what is bubbling up in you, your passions, your priorities, your desires are for things like forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration, that is God's Spirit at work in you. You are in the flow. Go with it. Let that Spirit prompt your prayers, prompt your passions, prompt your priorities. That's where God is at work. That's the Spirit moving in you. It is the Spirit of God in the world, in history, that seems to be driving us forward, not giving up on us. And so, in conclusion, let us be Trinitarian, not merely creedal, in creedal statements, but in the living of life and faith. God is a good, good Father. We have nothing to fear in life or in death. He's got it. He's got this, all of it, including you. Trust Him. Believe Him love him. And when life is hard and you experience suffering, injustice, pain, sorrow, loss, misunderstanding, betrayal, loneliness, rejection, or anything that feels like death, remember Jesus and the pattern of reality that he gave us. Change, death, and transformation are part of the deal. There's no resurrection without death, no renewal without surrender or loss. And finally, believe that God's creative, life-giving Spirit is at work in you and in the world. Lean in, watch, pray, and join Him.
And I guess one last word. This hopefully won't be the last word on the Trinity. But God himself gives us a pattern of relationship, of connectedness. And in a world that is so terribly divided, God himself has given to us this pattern of himself, of being in in this mutual relationship of love, this flow of love. And we are invited to be part of that. And it shapes, as I said, how we think and live and love. Listen, bottom line, everything comes from God, is connected to God, belongs to God, and will return to God. Everything and everyone. And if we doubt that, Scripture itself affirms, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God will have His loving way. Amen.